The Seattle Mariners, Felix Hernandez, the 2-2. Two -two. He got him! 34 years, 119 games. It's finally happened. A perfect game by a Seattle Mariner. It was done by the king, Felix Hernandez. What is up? It is August 22nd, a Wednesday, one day later than normal this week. But, you know, sometimes with the guests that we get, you got to kind of, you got to kind of massage them and say, yeah, that'll work. That's okay. <laughs> you want to talk to us on Wednesday, even though our deadline's on Tuesday? No problem. You know, so because of that, we're coming to you one day later from Buffalo, New York. Beautiful Buffalo, New York. Summer. Here is making one last yeah, gasp, no kind of, uh, one last peek around the clouds before it goes into hibernation, as the rest of us will be for football season. Uh, but season two, episode thirty-one, August twenty-second, two thousand and two, got a great show lined up for you today. Jane Levy is going to join us today. Uh, she has a great article on Grantland.com, or at least it appeared there last week, about head trauma and the effect that head trauma has on the National Football League. She went right down to the lab where they study the brains of the former players and was able to actually see up close what a mutated NFL brain looks like. CTE. Yeah, yeah the CTE yeah. and also the thing, the kind of... One that no one wants to talk about yet is also this form of Lou Gehrig's disease that many NFL players are now getting. I hadn't heard about that. Because of this. So she had a chance to check all that out. We're going to get a full report from Jane on that and talk to Jane a little bit. And you know what? People love when Jane Levy is on the Sportscasters for whatever reason. So it's good to have Jane back. Also on the show today, one of our favorite, favorite guests, Jeff Perlman, who wrote our favorite book uh, from the Book Club Book of the Month last year, Sweetness, uh, which we named the Book Club Book of the Month, is going to join us because Sweetness was released on paperback this week. Okay. So I reached out to Jeff and I said, I know the book is coming out on paperback and if you'd like the opportunity to come on the show and talk to some of our millions and millions of fans <laughs> about, about the book and about the release, we'd be more than glad to uh, make that happen for you. So Jeff is going to be on the show as well. And then we have one last guest, which put it like this. Last week, we promised that we'd get a football guest on the proper show this week because we've been kind of hoarding all of our football guests over at the Football Nation podcast. So we said that finally we would get a uh, football guest on the Sportscasters proper, and today we're going to do that. And we'll let you know who that is sometime between – the book club update and five on fantasy. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. So before we can get to any of those things today, we have to kick things off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll kick it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. 
I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. My first thing this week should be about how, through the magic of editing, the stuff I forget to do real time <laughs> hopefully goes unnoticed. But in reality, my first thing is Felix Hernandez, as you heard in the opening clip, uh, pitched the third perfect game of the year in baseball. And this was a no-joke perfect game, or we were talking about this off the air, about how in the grand scheme of perfect games, this one should mean a little bit more in that they played an opponent that needed a win. Uh, they game was close all the yeah, way. Yeah, he had no run support, really. It was a one nothing game. He had 12 strikeouts. Uh he was just unhittable that night. And, again, they're, they're a team that's out of it, but the team they played is absolutely not. So, uh, high marks to Felix Hernandez, and congratulations to the Mariners for yeah. a highlight this year, I suppose. Yeah, I think if you're ever going to sit down and try to rank the perfect games in order from most impressive to least impressive, this one would get higher and higher on the list because of some of the factors that Don mentioned. It was a one nothing game for most of the game. I think that if Seattle was playing, say, Houston, and Houston got through the order two times without getting a hit, you could see him rolling over and kind of having some defeated at-bats. Right. But the Rays couldn't afford that. The Rays needed to scratch out a run. The Rays needed to get a win, and that kept the pressure on Felix up the whole way through and the way he was sh- I think he struck out the side in the eighth and got another struck out strikeout in the ninth I mean he was just absolutely incredible and it was really a cool thing because MLB.tv is an app on my Apple TV and although I don't subscribe to it each day they give you a free game and that day that was the free game so I got to check it out after I found out it was going on around the fifth inning and uh, it was a really cool thing to see. And I know people have said this year, uh, because that was, a, I think, the third perfect game this year. Yes. People have said they're getting they're getting less important the more there are. I mean, that was the 23rd one in the history of baseball. That because of that, it somehow takes away from it. I just totally disagree with that. Anytime a guy is like within six or eight or two outs of a perfect game, the the arm that the hairs on my arms stand up, and I just, I just, I just want to watch it. I just got to see it. It's it's one of the great things about baseball. Yeah, I wonder if it would be more, it'd be more significant for sure if Seattle was in a race. I mean, granted, they're not out of it. They're seven and a half games back of the wild card, but I mean, they're they're out of it, basically. But so I mean, many teams. If to... they were fighting for a spot with Tampa, maybe that adds to the drama. Maybe that makes maybe that would bump it above Felix's performance. But anyway. One of the all-time great pitching performances. Also, to note, last night when we normally would have been podcasting, Steven Strasburg was pitching, got his 15th win. and Ten strikeouts scheduled, and six Scheduled to be shut down probably at the early next month. So Ugh. there's no way that happens, it's right? It's ridiculous. We're, we, let's, oh, you know what? Fine. Let's get off on a tangent here about this. Because look at Who do the Nationals think they are? Right, they're Why not the Yankees. They na- they're not the Yankees. You do not get an unlimited look at this, right? This franchise hasn't been in this position since 1994, and then the league locked, locked out or had a strike, and the Expos didn't get a chance to play for the World Series. And I'm not saying that if they don't 
take their chance to play for the World Series this year. It's not going to come again for 15 years. But look at There's a good chance it won't, though. You never know. When you have a look at it this clearly, when you can... They're in the playoffs, basically, at this point. They're going to be a high seed. It's not the greatest National League of all time. You have to go for it. You owe it to your fans. What what are they protecting Strasburg from? Right. I mean, if, you do, if you're not going to use him now, why don't you I use mean, him? this would be unprecedented. Has, ever before, has someone who got Tommy John surgery went through the recovery and then returned to pitch just stopped midway through the next year just for right. the sake of it? I understand they want to protect their investment and they want Steven Strasburg to be a part of the Nationals' success for the next 10 years, but that success is not guaranteed, and I think... They'd be absolutely crazy not to go for it 100% this year. And it's going to be really hard to explain to the average guy in D.C. why he should buy a ticket to come see that team when they're shutting down players like that. I think it's criminal and crazy. Number one pitching team in the major leagues and number 12 hitting team. So, I mean, they're above average, way above average in both categories. I mean... This has probably never, it's definitely never happened for the Washington Nationals. I mean, without question. It's insane. It's insane. I can't believe, I can't believe they would even, even entertain it. Well, speaking of things that will really frustrate a baseball fan, since we've been on the air last, two Major League Baseball players have been suspended for 50 days for violating Major League Baseball's policy on performing enhancing drugs the day after the podcast last week it was Melky Cabrera a former Yankee a former average player who suddenly was having the greatest season of his career and I don't know maybe shame on us for being gullible and being sucked into thinking that Melky Cabrera had just found the perfect spot I mean he's a career 284 hitter with 69 home runs, 417 RBIs, and 995 hits. You, this season, though, uh, before this suspension, uh, he was uh, batting... Uh, geez, give me a second to find it here. <laughs> but uh, significantly better, let's put it that way, right. than what, what his... Uh, what his previous totals were, and and he he made a fool of us as far as I'm concerned. He made us look stupid with this PED stuff. Base, baseball has a big problem, and it's still out there. Maybe it's not as rampant as it was, but they have to decide how they're going to attack this. They they have to make it where I mean these players, Melky Cabrera, and I already forgot the other one, uh, Bartolo Colon. Bartolo Colon was the second one. Yes. They. What's amazing to me is that they find it worthwhile to do these steroids, even knowing that they could face a 50-game suspension. So, for whatever reason, in other sports, either the advantage isn't there from taking the performance-enhancing drugs, or the penalties are more severe, or the testing is better. But in baseball, these players either think that it's worth a shot, or that they think they can beat it. And if they think they can beat it, and if that's the reason that there's still players getting in trouble for this, then the baseball has to crack down on it. They have to do. They have to do better. Cabrera, a lifetime. What did I say? 280 hitter, sitting 346 this year. His on base percentage is 390. Slugging 516. His OPS was 906. He had 159 hits, 
25 doubles, 10 home runs. I mean, what are we? You know, what are we? Are we complete freaking fools to buy into things like this? You know, and Cabrera, who is pitching for Oakland, who is fighting for their playoff lives, been one of the feel-good stories of the year. Well, now this fat pig is going to miss time yep. uh, because he can't follow the rules either. You know, he's uh, has 10 wins this season. It's his best total since 2005. His ERA is 3.43. That's his best ERA total since 2002. His whip is 1.21. That's his best since 2005. His walks per nine innings is 1.4. Best ever. K's uh, per K to walk ratio is 3.96. Best ever. Uh, innings pitch per game, 6.3. Best since 2005. His uh, win over replacement is 2.7. His best since 2005. I mean, who are who are we kidding here? Yeah, those are they're not career highs, but the guy's pitching the best that he's pitched since 2005 or 2002 or ever in every measurable category. Yeah, and you feel like with the better pitching numbers this year, that maybe they finally are weeding out. Like to some extent, I don't think the pitching maybe was terrible back in the steroid era, but maybe the hitters were just had an unfair advantage that the pitchers couldn't match. Maybe it was feeling like, okay, uh, these smaller players are doing better. Pitching is getting better. Maybe the steroids are finally out of the sport. But for whatever reason, these guys think they can get away with it. And that, that's a problem. That tells me that Major League Baseball doesn't do enough. Well, there was to- the debate that 50 games is a joke. Somebody said it should be up to 100. And Major League Baseball's response to that was, Players who want to cheat are always going to cheat regardless of suspension, and they pointed at the two-year ban that comes from being caught in track and field sports. So, I don't know. I don't know where I stand on that. I haven't thought about it quite enough yet, but all I know is, you know what? Screw you, Melky Cabrera, and screw you, Bartolo Colon. Go away, you two big fat cheaters. 50 games should take care of the rest of the season, or pretty close to it at this point. And, uh... Way to put your teams in a spot where they might make the, make miss the playoffs instead of make it because you can't follow the rules. All right, I have a quick aside to my first point. This isn't my second point, just a little additive here. Deadspin is reporting that Bodie Dockle, D-O-C-K-A-L, a baby has witnessed the two perfect games this year, Phil Humbers and Felix Hernandez. The same baby. The same baby. It was at Safeco Field for both Phil Humber's game for the Red Sox or for the White Sox and Felix Hernandez this week. So interesting. Now wasn't didn't someone bring him to the games? That was well, at both. Like yeah, it looks like his dad, dad was too. Yeah, dad was at both. Dad is a White Sox fan living in Seattle, so he got tickets for both. Gotcha. Interesting. Unbelievable. I imagine he's not the only one, but he's probably the only baby. Uh, also on Deadspin, my second take this week Danica Patrick it's maybe she should just quit (laughs) she should just stop bracing Uh, that's not a sexist statement that's kind of just a commentary on the story when you hear it we don't normally go blue on the show but I'm quoting an athlete in Danica Patrick who said something's fucked up was her quote after a NASCAR race at Montreal where she was knocked out after leading more laps than she had ever led in any other race since Daytona. So she's having the race of her life. When 
someone threw a shoe onto the onto the track, and it caused the mechanic like she ran it over, mm. and it messed something up under the car, caused a mechanical issue, and she had to leave the race. My goodness, was it like a high heel? I, I have no idea, but it says radio communication between Patrick and her pit crew suggests part of her car was torn off by the shoe when her car ran it over. So Danica cannot catch a break. Uh, that's why I was saying maybe she should just hang it up. I'm not sure. Karma is against her for some reason. So is she going to end up being essentially the Anna Kornikova of racing? I mean, are we ready to put that well, label on She's the on only her? girl in racing as far as I know, right? I mean, I shouldn't say that. I. She's th- yes, recognizable. Essentially, right. yeah. Well, but what I meant is that Kornikova was known for, for her, her looks, looks but never right. won anything. You know, is Dan- Danica Patrick going to be this really beautiful girl who broke into a male thing? But I don't get the impression, at least with Danica Patrick, that she definitely uses the look thing for advertising. Right, with GoDaddy and right. things like that. But that said, I don't get the... Uh, Anna Kornikova was kind of unabashed about her use of her looks. Uh, I've read articles that said Anna Kornikova wanted to win. So maybe she just wasn't good enough. Maybe she got accolades unfairly. Maybe that's the case with Danica Patrick, but she was winning this race. I have some stats for you. Since Danica Patrick made her move to NASCAR, she has raced some in the Sprint Series, which is the top, and most in the Nationwide Series, which would be their AAA. Right. That's what she was racing in this one. Right. In the Sprint Cup Series, she's raced three races. She has zero wins, zero top tens, zero pulls. Very small sample size, though. In the Nationwide Series, she's raced in 47 races over a span of three years. Okay. Has zero wins, one pull, and four top ten finishes. Hmm. Okay. Before NASCAR, she raced in the IndyCar Series. She ran 115 races over seven years. Uh, she had one win, made it to seven podiums, and had three poles. So, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, I don't know if Anna Kornikova ever won anything. I'm sure she did at some point, but, yeah, you're probably right. But then again, especially in NASCAR, she's probably not the first person 47 races into her NASCAR career with only, with uh, only four top tens. Right. You know, so there's plenty of, plenty of time. It's probably... I, to answer my own question, it's probably too early. We need to give her a little bit more of a chance. And it's easy to look to at develop. her because she stands out. She's the, she's the girl out there. So, like you said, I'm sure you can take a sample size of anybody that hasn't had a lot of success and it would look pretty similar. All right, we talked a little bit about Perfect Games before. And I'll never forget watching at my dad's house, with my or my mom and dad's house with my brothers, as uh, Jim Joyce accidentally... Blew a call and cost Tigers pitcher Armando Galarraga a perfect game two years ago. Yeah. The good news about it was Galarraga was really cool, forgave him, understood how, he understood how bad Joyce felt for making the call, and uh, there ended up being an understanding between Joyce and Galarraga, and uh, Galarraga was hailed as a model of sportsmanship. You know, as a good sportsman. Right, right. Well... Joyce has finally gotten his chance to, I don't know if I want to say make that right wrong, but 
he's finally gotten a chance to get his name in the news for doing something even more incredible than correctly calling the final out of a perfect game. Okay. The other day, uh, Joyce was umping a game in Arizona. And a longtime Arizona Diamondbacks food service employee named Jane Powers um, was choking, basically. And Joyce stumbled upon her. She was clearly in, in, in distress. She was having a seizure, a seizure. And Joyce could see that she wasn't breathing. Luckily, Joyce knows CPR and used it while singing Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. Not a joke. Oh, I've heard that. that. That's the... You sing Staying Alive to yourself, and that's the rate at which you're supposed to do like the chest compressions. To the beat of that song. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I've seen I've seen uh, CPR videos about that. Um, he did this before the first responders arrived. Uh, Powers was taken to the hospital from there, where she's currently resting. And deservedly, Joyce is the man of the hour. Um, as it lo- uh, this, I'm reading this from SportsGrid.com, which is kind of a site that we like a bit. Uh, quote from Joyce, I knew something was wrong, and I knew if something wasn't done, this lady could actually die in front of me. It was more of an instinct than anyone else, anything else. The way I look at it is somebody needed help, and I was fortunate enough to know what to do. So congratulations, Jim Joyce. You're a hero. Yeah, that- uh, you saved this lady's life, and uh, hopefully anyone who still holds a grudge against you from missing a now. call yeah. in a baseball game can let it slide. I don't know how he saw her. Was he just, was it between innings? He just kind of looked into the crowd and saw her there? Or? I actually think it was before the game. Oh, so food service, maybe like, like kind of like prep, craft services or whatever, like they would have, she's somehow behind the scenes, maybe not necessarily at a... No, I think cons- what would happen is like, say it's the hamburger stand and a couple hours before the game, oh, he was just walking the employees by. are there and they're oh. getting the burgers ready for the game and he happens to be walking by and gotcha. there she is and... Yeah. All right, my great story. Yeah. My last thing this week, just a quick congratulations to USA Soccer. Uh, The men were kind of embarrassed about the Olympics. Yeah, not qualifying. Not qualifying. And they made that right to some degree by getting their first ever victory in Mexico. Uh, In the famous Azteca Stadium, they they won 1 0 over Mexico. It's the first time they've ever won there, correct? First time they ever won in Mexico, yep. I mean, it's only a friendly, but again, not too long ago, who was it? Brazil, I think they beat them for the first time. So Italy, Italy. Yep. Okay. So they've beaten two teams for the first time ever. That's a step in the right direction. Missing the Olympics is a step in the wrong direction, but uh, baby steps, I guess, with U.S. soccer. But congratulations, friendly, but it's an accomplishment nonetheless. Before it gets too late, we should probably reach out to Grant Wall and see if we can. Uh put this into context and learn more about what this victory means for the USA. I watched the highlights and it was a great goal that they scored and the goalie Howard was incredible in the game. The only thing I complain about is we were dressed in some horrendous Where's Waldo uniforms. Oh yeah. Yeah I mean I don't know who thought that these uniforms were a good idea but (laughs) they were hideous. Alright my last story for today uh, Derek Jeter you know me, you know I'm I'm a fan of Derek Jeter. And last night he hit the first pitch of the game out of the ballpark for his 12th homer, giving him sole possession of 11th place 
on the career hits list. He has 3,256 hits, and he is now ahead of Eddie Murray. Um, you know, it seems like just a couple years ago, people were ready to say that Derek Jeter was done, done basically. Yeah. that yeah, We were uh, talking the year he was chasing Lou Gehrig, Lou Gehrig for the Yankees' hit, all-time hit list. hit list. Yeah. He had a lousy year. It took a long time for him to get to that, longer than people would have thought. But, yeah, and I, I was one of them, I think. I, I was ready to write him off. I'm not a Yankee fan. I don't waste my time with a lot of Yankee hate either, but I thought, okay, it just age caught up to him. But, yeah, I mean, I'm more of a Yankee fan than a Yankee hater. I don't, like, maybe like you said, I don't spend a lot of time on each, but I do like Derek Jeter quite a bit. And he's had his seasons, you know, batting 270. Just a few years ago, he finished the season batting 270. He's 38 That's now. Probably the season you're talking about. Well, he's hitting 324 this year. Yeah, he's doing really well. You know, I mean, he's hitting, he's having a phenomenal season. He's got 12 home runs, like I mentioned, 42 RBIs from the leadoff spot. You know, you might want him to walk a little bit more for a leadoff hitter. He's only got 30 walks, but he's still hitting 324. His on-base percentage is 365. Slugging percentage is 466, which is pretty close to the best he's ever had. He has had a couple of seasons higher than that, but that's right up there. Do you know what his middle name is? Uh, Sanderson. We had a, the Sabres had a Derek Sanderson. <laughs> they did. That's it. I never knew that. Yeah, Derek Sanderson. Uh, Jeter. Jeter yeah. So congratulations to Jeter, who doesn't need the sportscasters to pat no. him on the back, that's for sure. He's got plenty of hot girlfriends to do that. But I thought it was pretty cool to see him up to number 11, and it don't, I don't think it's unrealistic that he might be able to get to 10 this year. I'm not positive about that, but it'll be interesting in the twilight of his career to see just how far he can push himself up that ladder yeah. into the... Uh, I mean, everyone he passes now is a, a Hall of Famer. Sure. So, but it'll be interesting to see how far he can get. All right. Yeah, my thing, real quick, yeah. you're talking about Derek Jeter. Uh, my thing with Derek Jeter is he's he's a hard worker. He's a super hustler. The only thing I could do without, as far as Derek Jeter goes, is like the theatrics. I feel like sometimes he embellishes, especially like inside pitches, uh, I know what you mean. I feel like the catch he made, I can't remember against who in the playoffs, was a little overrated. The flip out? No, 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 no. When he went into the stands. Okay, that was a regular season game against Boston. And he busted himself all up doing it. I thought that catch was a little bit over. No, the flip was a crazy instinctive play. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I just don't need the theatrics from him. I think he's great without that stuff. Yeah, I can see what you mean. But I think for the most part, if you hate Derek Jeter... It's probably because you're jealous. Yeah, yeah. For the most part. I, I think you fall into one of a couple categories. One, you're jealous. Or two, you're a Red Sox fan, so you're just <laughs> born to have Cheetah. to do it. All right. All right. The three things music ended, which means we must have been going on and on for a while. Yeah, I guess so. We'll have to shorten it up somewhere else. Let's take a break, and uh, we'll be right back with Jane Levy. Our first guest today is from Long Island, New York. She did her undergraduate studies at Bernard College, 
before earning her master's degree at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Early in her career, she was a staff writer at Women's Sports and Self Magazines. Since then, she went on to be a staff writer at the Washington Post from 1979 to 1988. She has been published in the New York Times, Newsweek, Sports Illustrated, and the New York Daily News. Her work has been anthologized in many collections, including Alex Belf's Lasting Yankee Stadium Memories. I'm in my interview. Her comic novel squeeze play was held by Entertainment Weekly as the best novel ever written about baseball. She is also the author of the New York Times bestseller Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's, Le- Lefty's Legacy, and The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle, and the End of America's Childhood. She was the guest editor of the 2011 edition of the Best American Sports Writing Series. Today, she is making her fourth appearance on the podcast. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very distinguished Jane Levy. How are you doing today, Jane? I'm good, Steve. How are you? Very good to have you on. You know, you're one of the favorites. You're one of the, yeah. one of the favorites in the sense that you're one of the favorite people I like to have on, and you're one of the favorite people that the listeners like to have on. And so what that and you means, finally started stop calling me Mrs. And I stopped calling you Mrs. As hard as that was for me. Well, I, I guess it became less hard when I found out you weren't a Mrs. <laughs> that would make it easier. <laughs> right. So then I, I I think you know that that made it a lot a lot easier then to because uh, it was uh, against my manners in that way then to call you Mrs. <laughs> Your manners are impeccable, Steve. Right. So. I'm always looking for excuses to have you on, and the other day I was just kind of perusing Grantland, as I often do, and I found your name, and I found a really great article about a topic that is certainly very, very, very topical these days, and gets more topical, it seems, by the day, and that's the whole idea of the effects that the violence of football can have on the brain and what this leads to after players finish their playing career in the National Football League. So I guess before we before I go any farther, I guess what I want to know for you from you is kind of what drew you to this story? What drew the person who is most known for writing these great books about Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle into writing a long form piece on Grantland? about the effects that playing football can have on the brain? Um, Wonderful question, um, and I'll try to answer it succinctly. Um, I am a great admirer of Alan Schwartz, um, the New York Times reporter who really broke uh, the the bulk and the earliest reporting um, about brain concussions and their research being done in... um, Bedford, Massachusetts, by Dr. Anne McKee and her colleagues at the, I'm going to butcher this, Center for the Study of Traumatic Encephalopathy. Maybe I didn't butcher it. And part of what drew me to it was that I asked Alan, um, who has moved on to a new beat, what's the one story you didn't write that you would if you could? And he said, um, uh, an in-depth look at Anne McKee. You know, she's become the public face of um, the, uh, a growing body of researchers and scientists, all of whom are looking to try to understand 
the long-term consequences, how widespread this is, whether there is a genetic, genetic predisposition, whether there is a, uh, a factor of the decade you played or the position you played. But, um, of course, because she's a woman and because she was so early and front and center in this, um, and because I guess I'm a girl too, I was just really curious about her. And Alan said, you know, nobody's ever really gotten her to be able to sit down and talk about what this work means to her and for her. And I was also really drawn even before that um, by the stories I would read about the wives of the players, sometimes um, widows, sometimes ex-wives, sometimes wives hanging in there with men who are disintegrating around them. Um, and who don't resemble the people they married, the people they watched, the people they grew up with. And um, so the the notion of the women working with this um, extremely distinguished female doctor who is perceived by some people wrongly, I think, for trying to kill football and who took on the NFL um, was an irresistible you know, uh, opportunity. You know, it seems like Dr. Anne McKee almost finds herself in the ultimate catch-22 where her life's work is, as you said, being perceived as as putting her in the spot of trying to kill football, yet you paint a picture of a person who absolutely loves the game of football and is a huge Packers fan and Loves she's Sunday a cheesehead. God bless her. She's yeah, a cheesehead. She even has a cheesehead. She grew up in uh, Wisconsin, 30 miles from Lambeau Field. Her father played college football. Her brothers played college football. One was a, a division champion, I think, in, in Wisconsin, and there was some interest in him for the NFL, but um, he became a doctor uh, instead, um, like his baby sister, seven years younger. But she told me about standing outside in her front yard with a big sign saying, Chuck McKee lives here, because she was so proud of him and, you know, of course, couldn't miss a game. Um, So, yeah, there's this anomalous quality of this woman who goes home, as, as one of the people say, you know, puts on her Packers sweatshirt, you know, pops open a beer, you know, gets a bag of popcorn and watches, um, you know, the, the the green and gold and then gets up, as she said to me, and goes, you know, after, after watching a game, after everything she's learned, after everything she's seen, how can I watch this? And she loves it. She absolutely loves it. Is the perception that she is the one who is ruining football maybe really – should it really be the opposite where she is the one person who's smart enough and passionate enough about football to do this work and to come up with the changes that are needed to protect the players that play the game that we all love? Um First of all, she would never say she's the only one. And in fact, um, there's another guy, Bennett Amalu, who diagnosed Mike Webster and um, Andre Waters and came on the scene first. But um, Anne is part of this team um, affiliated with BU and with Chris Nowinski's Sports Legacy Institute, which is an advocacy arm 
of this um, very distinguished research uh, research group. And Anne, you know, partly because she's so articulate, um, she's actually quite funny and, um, you know, it's, it almost is a disservice to her because she's funny and personable and eminently quotable in a world where, you know, as one of her colleagues said, most neuropathologists look, look and sound like they've been soaked in formaldehyde. And God knows she does not. So she, she has become not just a, um, she's become the face of the, um, research. And, you know, the amount of research being done now and the number of places and the number of avenues to try to figure out how to diagnose the disease in the living. Because, of course, the reason that she became known was that she was able, as a neuropathologist, to see and diagnose this disease, CTE, in the brains of um, deceased uh, football players and NHL enforcers and boxers and wrestlers um, because she saw and uh, understood that the pattern of um, pathology that she was seeing was so different from the you know thousands of brains she had seen previously who had damage that was similar but appeared in a completely different pattern. That there's a protein in the brain that's uh, an essential element in um, brain cells that um, basically she compares it to a piece of infrastructure. It helps hold the um, cells together and therefore makes conduits. Uh, it's, it's sort of a conduit. And when the brain gets hit uh, upside the head, one too many times and goes sloshing around inside the skull, um, this substance, this protein called tau, begins to um, uh, spread, and it spreads from the outside um, in to the essence of a person, she said. Um, and it appears at first in little clumps around blood vessels um, and uh, little holes that look like somebody's taken a cigarette button, you know, left a cigarette hole in, in the brain, and it goes all the way inwards and, and spreads into these neurofibrillary tangles that she compares to uh, sometimes to um, phrase, like the, you know, phrase on a pair of jeans, uh, or to a, a skein of yarn that um, has uh, gotten all tangled up by a pussycat, maybe. Um, so she has the uh, advantage of having seen so many brains before in Alzheimer's because uh, she's affiliated with uh, BU Alzheimer's um, uh, clinical research um, that she could notice in a way that other people couldn't that, yes, the substance was the same, but it was spreading in a very different way and appearing in different parts of the brain um, and at an age when you don't usually see it, because, of course, most Alzheimer's patients are, are older. Um, so part of what, what was most interesting to me is her lab in Bedford, Massachusetts, which is at the VA hospital, which uh, the VA has given her lab a home and they've given her a million dollars in research funds, is lined with these incredibly dramatic and oddly beautiful portraits or close-up photos of brain tissue, and she's taken them all herself. She was a 
uh, an art major her first year in college at the University of Wisconsin, and she still got an artist sensibility. And again, as one of her colleagues said, the same guy who said what he said about formaldehyde, you know, great neuropathologists are often artists. They have that ability to see beauty um, in pathology and to be able to um, display it in a way that is understandable to a lay person. I mean, you know, how many times would you and I look at a brain tissue and go, oh, yeah, I can see what she means? Well, her, her portraits of brains of John Grimsley and Tom McHale and Dave Duerson and Owen Thomas, you know, you can see what happened to them. And it is, um, they're irrefutable portraits of, of what the violence of the, you know, um, encounters with um, other players of, of a size can do to a person's um, capacity to think, to sleep, to function, to know where they are, to remember who they are. Um, and so it's, it's an extraordinary contribution she's made. You had a chance to go and look at a brain with her. Uh, what was that experience like? Well, you know, um, I, I'd read other stories where you know reporters were there when and and she would she would open up a brain for them and um, and so I asked, could I can I see a brain? And you know, um, she walked me down this hall past these you know, portraits, these photographic portraits of. Um, from pathology reports that she'd done. Um, and uh, one of her assistants, uh, an assistant neuropathologist in, in the lab, um, Dr. Victor Alvarez, was in there. And um, it's an unprepossessing room in an unprepossessing building with one more drawer, like you see. And he said, just like on TV, and they have a deli cabinet with filled with Buckets that you would normally see filled with potato salad at um, at a delicatessen, and um, I said, "Could I see a brain?" And she, he was gowned up, and she wasn't, so uh, she sort of gestured, and he um, removed a brain from the um, from the what's this is the brain bank um, where they now have, um, I believe, as of the time the story ran, it was 125 brains of athletes and former um, soldiers, because, of course, they're, you know, it's at the VA. And uh, so this was a, a brain of, a, of an elderly veteran, and it was diminished. Um, I'm not sure. They hadn't done They obviously hadn't done the autopsy. I'm not sure what they found, but it was quite small and atrophied um, from some kind of illness, either Alzheimer's or perhaps something else. Um, and... It seemed to me, and maybe I was being poetic, but it seemed to me that when Dr. Alvarez, you know, got his scalpel and just before he made a decisive cut to cut the brain in two, it seemed to me he paused. And I asked her about that later, and she said, um, there is a kind of pause and a somberness comes over the room um, anytime they do this, because... It is very clear to her, very palpable to her, that these are people. This is a life. Um, she's, in, in a way, recreating that life, rediscovering that life and what happened to that life, working as neuropathologists must from the end of the book back towards the beginning. 
you know, CTE has been kind of in the in the front of this, but also there's been a lot of cases of Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, that have come up as well. Did you happen to see any of the real sports piece with former Saint um, Steve Gleason and and his battle with with uh, yeah yeah yeah, and then I know about his. I know about some of this because I spoke to Kevin Turner, uh, former fullback for um, the Patriots and, and Eagles, who has been diagnosed with ALS and who is working with McKee's team. He's one of oh, probably five, one, four, five hundred athletes who have promised to donate their brains to this um, to the brain registry. Um, uh, affiliated with this BU program. Um, McKee wrote a paper some two years ago um, in which she showed that they had discovered an ALS-like disease in several athletes, and that was a became a front-page story in the New York Times with much speculation about whether Lou Gehrig, who actually had suffered a number of concussions, in his career, whether he could possibly have had this variation. And that was um, head- headline-grabbing, to say the least. Um, you know, there's no way anybody's going to ever know for sure. But um, they, she has now found uh, an ALS-like disease. And I cannot describe what the difference is between... Um, ALS regular and the one she's talking about um, in 11 former athletes, pro and amateur. Mm. Sportscasters are here with Jane Levy. Usually we talk about baseball and it's a little bit more fun than going into this kind of darker world of football and the consequences of football. But I think the question I have to ask you is, Having seen what you've seen and learned what you've learned and having the time you spent with Dr. Ann McGee, if you had a son right now that was, say, 13 Absolutely years old... Absolutely not. No? You wouldn't do it? No football? No. I mean, you know, Kurt Warner said no. Terry Bradshaw went on um, the Tonight Show with Jay Leno in June and said if he had a son, uh, he wouldn't let him play. Um, I wouldn't well, help. I wouldn't let my daughter played gymnastics back in the day and she was a live live young thing because that sport is so dangerous not in the, not particularly in this way but um no i i, I think um uh, robert cantu the uh neurosurgeon who is one of the co-directors of the center for the study of traumatic encephalopathy and part of mckee's uh, one of McKee's colleagues and part of that team, along with Chris Nowinski and a, um, a, a psychologist named Bob Stern, um, he said that kids should not play any collision sports between 6 and 14. That, um, you know, the brains are not developed yet, and particularly girls, I mean, think of girls doing headers in soccer. Their necks are not as strong and as developed and as muscular as boys and so the the consequences and the you know the the um dimensions of that problem you know are not yet known um but it's um uh it's it's an epidemic and you know what they don't know and they're trying to find out and they're and having a hard time doing it 
because they're dependent on donations of of brains, and it's a it's it's not a huge sample. She has diagnosed CTE and. Um, uh, around 70 athletes to date, and I know there's another study coming out uh, sometime in the near future um, with a wider sample, but, it, you know, the, it's a skewed sample by definition because it's donations and it's donations of people who have, who have concerns about this. Um, uh, so they don't really know how prevalent it's going to be. They don't know why one person might be more susceptible than another. Is it the position they played? Is it the decade they played? Is there something in their DNA and their makeup um, that causes them to heal more slowly or be more prone to concussion? Um, as one of the, as Bob Stern said to me, the science is still in its infancy. The progress that's been made so far, both in changing public opinion and in getting to understand what's going on inside the brain tissue is enormous, but it's still very early in the scientific game. Sportscasters finishing up with Jane Levy, um, the author of one of our favorite former Sportscasters book club books of the month, The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle and the End of America's Childhood. Not on Twitter, so I can't give you a Twitter name. Uh, the last... I am on Twitter. I just never wrote anything. <laughs> That's right. I'm I'm Godot. I'm the Godot of of Twitterdom. So the last thing I want to know is this. So you've written in magazines and spent a lot of time writing for um, newspapers. What about this piece and Grantland? How do, how did the form that Grantland offers lend itself nicely to this piece? Well, I've been writing for them um, for most of the year. And it is a longer, long-form journalism than even they are accustomed to. But I think they felt that the subject was important and so much of the moment, particularly with training camps opening and you know, the release of Junior, Junior South. How did I get? I never, yeah. I always boggle the poor man's uh, last name. Um, his brain, his autopsy. And, you know, the, the question about really nobody knows exactly what went on inside of his brain tissue and how much it's all speculation. And it's, it's, it's a function of just how much has changed in this world that when he killed himself, um, the blogosphere exploded with um, statements, not even hypotheticals. Junior had CTE. Well, we don't know that. But the the sea change in public perception that that must have been it is extraordinary, and um, and a lot of the progress is uh, due to to Anne McKee and what I think is very 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 brave research. Um, uh, and anybody who wants to write and thank her should do that because I think sometimes it's pretty lonely up there, um, out on that limb. Uh, the article is called The Woman Who Saved Football, and it's posted at grantland.com. And if you simply just search Jane Levy's name, it comes right up. Jane, thank you so much for your time today to talk a little bit about more about the issue. We really appreciate it. And I wanted to know, there was at least one funny moment when, when her colleague um, said, um, you know, most neuropathologists look and sound like they've spent 
decades in, in uh, formaldehyde. And then he said, and well, and uh, Google her. <laughs> You'll see she looks <laughs> nothing like somebody who's soaked in pathology. She is a lovely, lovely, interesting woman. I, I grew to like her enormously. Thank you so much, Jane. Thanks, Steve. Take Talk care. Soon. Yeah. Bye-bye. All right, we're back, and I want to thank Jane Levy for joining us on the program. You know, you got to admire someone like Jane Levy. Her book was once picked as the Book Club Book of the Month, and she wrote a book that she could be proud of and stand in front of and <laughs> go on to any podcast or any television show and answer questions about said book and then develop a relationship with said podcast and come on time and time again. You know, I really right. admire that. In the case of Joe Piznanski, well, we have a different set of circumstances. Let me read you some emails, and uh, I'm going to give you nothing but the facts, and you can draw your own conclusions. This email was sent on June 25th, 2012, to Kelly Welsh from Simon & Schuster. Kelly is the publicist in charge of promoting Paterno. Okay. Miss Welsh, my name is Stephen Bennett. I'm the host of a podcast based in Buffalo, New York, called The Sportscasters. We are very excited to hear. We are very excited about Joe Paterno's book, Paterno, or Joe Poznanski's book, Paterno. We have been keeping in touch with Joe, who has done our show in the past, during the process of his writing the book, and his assistant emailed me last night with your contact information. We are hoping for a copy of the book to review and a chance to interview Joe as he promotes the book. Jennifer informed us that all scheduling is going through your desk. We usually record interviews on Monday or Tuesday, but can certainly be flexible. Let me know what you need from us and where we stand as far as a copy of the book and getting on Joe's interview list. Thank you very much. Uh, Let's see. The next email was received just minutes later, 13 minutes later. Hey, Steve, thanks for reaching out. The book is embargoed, so we won't be releasing copies until August 28th, but I'll certainly send you a copy and we can find a date for the interview at that time. Great, right? Perfect. All right. Sounds good so far. Sounds good so far. July 23rd is the day that the free report came out. So I started to get a little nervous. Right. And I wrote Kelly an email. Kelly, I just wanted to email and see where things stand with the book and our interview. I read an article in the New York Times, and I figured I should touch base with you and clear up a few things. We have nothing but respect and admiration for Mr. Poznanski. In no way do we want to have him on our show to embarrass him, make him uncomfortable, or try to gain something at his expense. Mr. Poznanski came on our sixth episode, and because of that, we were able to grow and book great guests faster than if Mr. Poznanski didn't give us a chance. Since that sixth show, we have been waiting for the chance to have Mr. Poznanski back. I hope he is still willing to give us some time when the book is released. I just wanted to let you know where we stand. Thank you for everything so far. We look forward to reading the book. Now, you remember the last time I emailed her, she responded to my email within 13 minutes. Right. This time, she didn't respond at all, so I emailed her again a month later or so on August 16th. Kelly, I haven't heard back from you since June, and I know a lot has changed since then. 
With the book coming out on Tuesday, I have to imagine it will be off embargo soon. Will we be receiving our copy of the book? I'm still holding out hope that Mr. Biznanski is willing to do a phone spot with us. We recently interviewed Tommy Tomlinson, who is a partner of Mr. Biznanski on the Sports on Earth project. The interview went great, and I want to make sure you know that we have nothing but respect for Mr. Poznanski and have no intention to ambush him. Here's our address. Hope to hear back from you. Well, I heard back from her. Next day, next morning. She said, hey, Stephen, you'll receive a copy of Paterno on Monday. Best, Kelly. Right. Okay. I emailed her again on August 18th when the book arrived. Kelly, thank you for the book. I look forward to reading it. Where do we stand as far as our interview? I talked to Jennifer, Mr. Poznanski's assistant, and she said he would be happy to talk to us, but you are handling his schedule. We will be pleased to talk to him at his convenience, and I will be sure to be available day or night to take his call. We got in line for this ride in June. I hope we still have a spot, Steve. One last email from August 18th. At 12.14 p.m. Hi, Stephen. Sorry, but Joe is not available for this interview. If that changes, I'll let you know. Yeah. We... Yeah. Blown <laughs> off. Yeah, I fi- we kind of figured that might happen. So, here's Have you seen I, any press he's done yet? Yes. I Here's what I've seen him do so far. The Today Show. Okay. And one hour on the Mike Francesa show. Was the Today Show at all hard-hitting? No. They weren't tough on him at all? No. No, and Francesa was a little tougher, but not as tough, I don't think, as he could have as been. he could have been or as he would have been if it was still the Mike and the Mad Dog show. Right. Um, and also, he's doing one library appearance in his hometown of Kansas City. But here's what we're going to do. So what is he... Is he going to let this book wreck his career? I don't know, but... I should read one other thing. I sent a message to Jennifer, his assistant, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I basically said I'm frustrated. I contacted the publicist in June, and you know, then it was, yeah, we'll give you a book, we'll give you an interview, we'll give you the world, and it's going away, away, away. She sent me back, and she said that she's going to forward my email to Joe so he knows what's going on, and I'll let you know what I hear. She emailed me back and said, Steve, Joe said Kelly has received hundreds of requests for interviews and his schedule is extremely tight with the book release and the launch of Sports on Earth. He said he'll be happy to talk with you guys when things calm down, but for the next couple of months, SNS is handling all requests. Hopefully they can get you on the schedule sooner rather than later. That's Jennifer. Jennifer, his assistant, is great and has Mm -hmm. always been great to us. So the publicist is hiding him. So the publicist is hiding him and Joe is saying allegedly, that he will join us on the show when things, quote-unquote, calm down in a few months. Hmm. Now, Joe Poznanski has an open invitation to come on the show whenever he wants. Right. If he wants to come on in a couple of months, but he doesn't want to come on now, that's fine. And I, I hope he knows in a couple of months he's still going to have to answer that, right. some questions about Poznanski. That's why I wonder to some extent if his publicist is hiding him and he's not. You know what I mean? But I guess if that were the case, he could just do what he wanted and not listen to his publicist but yeah i i figured this might happen and it doesn't sound like we're the only ones getting blown off if he's only done really two pieces of media so far yeah so but you're right no matter how long he hides from it whether it's his own doing or his publicist doing 
this is what people are going to want to talk about. When he comes out with his next book about whoever that isn't Joe Paterno, people are going to still want to say. There's a few questions that I want to be able to have my chance to ask. Right. And it doesn't look like I'm going to get that chance. But you know what? I'm going to say this as far as the book club book of the month is concerned. Paterno is not a part of our book club. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to recommend to our readers to read this book. For one, they don't really need us to. Right, it's out there. Apparently, they feel like they have all the publicity they need. So what I'm going to do is... Do you know how it's selling? I don't. It's only been out a day. Right, right, right. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to focus my attentions on Best of Rivals, Joe Montana, Steve Young, and the inside story behind the NFL's greatest quarterback controversy by Adam Lazarus for a couple of reasons. One, Adam's excited to be a part of the book club, and Schuster and Schuster could care less about it. And I know that there's – look it. I don't think that we're Mike Francesa. Right. I understand that spending an hour on the Mike Francesa show is infinitely better than spending three years on this podcast. I, I didn't hear it, but I'm a little disappointed in Francesa that he wasn't overly tough on him. He could he could have been – I've seen half of it. So maybe he okay. was tougher in the first half. But I thought it came off as a little – A little soft. A little soft. Yeah. But – uh we're going to focus on best arrivals. Adam's going to be on the show next week. The book comes out next week. Uh, we're going to give it some time into September. And then we're going to switch focus. There's a new book written by Tony LaRussa coming out. And supposedly we're going to have a chance to interview Tony. And we're looking forward to that. So if you want to read Paterno, more of the power to you. Uh, I'm not blacklisting it or saying <laughs> it's a piece of crap or anything like that. I'm just saying... They don't want us, so we're not going to go out of our way to promote them. Right. We're not going to talk about it for a month. We're going to focus on Best Arrivals, and uh, hopefully you get a chance to pick that up next week. Either way, you have you can look forward to Adam being on the show next week. We're looking forward to that, and then we'll go from there. We do have a copy of the book to give away, and uh, we are going to start another function of the book club that's going to air on ppi or be listed on pro player insider or a website i write for occasionally with this book so look at i'm disappointed i'm really disappointed because i wanted the chance to talk to joe Poznanski. we followed this story since since it happened and we followed it with respect uh we've spoken to his colleagues his friends we've been respectful we've been respectful to him we've been respectful to his publicists and you know what maybe this is just a case where we're not quite big enough to be in the mix here and if that's the case we have to respect that really you know if he's only going to do five interviews for this book we're not going to be in the top five true right you know what i mean i mean we're only going to get guys like john smoltz and frank deford who have been on the show promoting books if they're going all out to promote their book a guy who's only promoting his book in a few small, select, controlled places is not going to pick the sportscasters, and I understand that. So I don't want this to come off as like real sour grapes. It's not that. I just wanted to point out that in June, we were promised a chance, and in August, we were told that promise was broken. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting scenario. So. Hopefully not when we come across again. Yeah. So that's that. That's the Book Click Club update for this week and we're going to be 
right back with the first football guest on the sportscasters proper in quite a while, uh, Jim Trotter from Sports Illustrated. Our next guest is from San Diego, California, and is a graduate of Howard University. He spent over 18 years at the San Diego Union Tribune and worked on the Chargers beat for 10 of those years. In 2007, he joined Sports Illustrated as a senior writer. He has been a contributor for ESPN's First Take and the NBC affiliate in San Diego. Today, he is making his third appearance on the Sportscasters. A warm welcome to the very talented Jim Trotter. How are you doing today, Mr. Trotter? I'm good. How are you? Doing very good. We realized at some point earlier when we were talking that this is getting real now. I mean, we're getting to the point where this next preseason game, most teams are going to play what they call their kind of dress rehearsal, and then everyone's basically going to take the next week off, and then, bam, it's going to be Wednesday, and we're going to be playing games for real. Absolutely, um, and that's kind of what we we all look forward to. You know, it's funny. We um, we say sometimes at the end of the year, man, the, the year's long. It'll be nice when it's over. You get a break, and then you never get a break, and at the same time, you're looking forward to the start of the new season because you want to do it all over again, so... Uh, every new every season brings you know new storylines and and um, new predictions and and yeah I'm excited right now I'm ready to get to it. We know that you spent a lot of time this summer visiting the camps of the AFC West and the NFC West. And before I start asking you some specific questions about specific teams, I'd like to know just kind of in general. Now, as you look back at going to see those teams and going to see those camps. What sticks out in your mind, either good or bad? Just how competitive um, the teams are. Uh, you know, you look at the, the AFC West, I believe a year ago, uh, the division was sided, or, or the difference between first and last place was one or two games. Um, and I think this year is going to be much of the same. You know, you look at the West, and San Francisco ran away with it last year, but you look at Seattle, and I think Seattle's much improved. Uh, and I think that Seattle, you know, under Pete Carroll, has that sort of swagger about them where they believe that even though San Francisco's the favorite, that they can jump in there and, and win that division. Um, the other thing that jumped out at me about the NFC West was just it may be the most physical division in football when you look at the fact that you've got three offenses in Seattle, San Francisco, and St. Louis that lean heavily on the run and want to establish the run game. Um, Jeff Fisher now in St. Louis, you know, he's, he's the type of guy who's comfortable winning games 17-14. He hasn't bought into, you know, that this is the age of the quarterback, so to speak, or the forward pass. Uh, and those defenses are very physical and fast and athletic, and they beat up on you. And that includes Arizona. So to me, um, that's what jumped out to me about the NFC West was not only how good I think San Francisco and Seattle can be, but just how 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 physical that division is. So um, again, that all you know, that's what football is about, and that's kind of what what gets me excited. Is you know, I know that that the league has backed away, or at least tried to shy away from the word violence and whatnot, but it's a violent game, and I think that those teams in in the NFC West are sort of throwbacks in some ways in terms of how football used to be played. Let's talk about some of the quarterbacks that you had a chance to see. Let's start with Sam Bradford. He had a pretty good rookie season, and 
regressed quite a bit last year, but I've heard some really good things from those who have seen him in camp. What was your opinion on Bradford and his ability to potentially bounce back and be that number one pick superstar that the Rams hoped when they drafted him a few years ago? I'm a big fan of Sam Bradford. I believe he has the ability and and the mindset to be an elite quarterback in this league. The issue is you've got to be able to protect him and you've got to be able to put weapons around him. And last year he was on pace to be sacked or knocked down 122 times, I believe it was, which would have been number one in the league by a long shot. Um, you can't have that uh, with your quarterback. The year before, I believe he was, he was knocked down or sacked 83 times. Um, so you're looking uh, you know, at a pace of over 100 a year, and that just can't work. And when I talked to Sam... Sam acknowledged to me that when he watched tape this offseason, he saw himself actually starting to look down at the rush or to leave the pocket a half second early instead of sliding to create passing windows. And that goes back to the whole David Carr syndrome. So I think Sam can be one of the greats, um, but I think you've got to be able to protect him and you've got to give him some weapons to work with. You know, the Rams at the draft, I think probably going into it, were can probably convinced that they were going to get Justin Blackman, and then when that didn't work out, the plan B probably was Michael Floyd, and that didn't work out. Did they do enough? Well, but let, me, let, me, yeah. let me say this to you. Their plan was not to get Justin Blackman. Their plan was to go after Trent Richardson. That's the guy that they wanted, Okay. Um, even when they traded back. So that tells you about Jeff Fisher's philosophy again when I talk about this being a physical division. Uh, Trent Richardson was the guy that they were looking at, and they felt that, that they could get wide receivers in the second round or maybe even if they felt like at the bottom of the first. So, um, you know, now I look at their wide receiver core, and, yeah, I say, to me, it's not good enough. Uh, okay. And I say that you should have addressed that for Sam Bradford. But, you know, they made a decision on what way they, they want to go. The young receiver that they got in quick, uh, I believe it's going to take him time to develop. You could see in training camp – the gears in his head was, were sort of shifting, that it wasn't coming natural at that point where you go from Appalachian State and, 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 and you know, that spread offense that they played into to doing what he's being asked to do in St. Louis. Um, you know, but I think that Jeff Fisher believes that he can take the pressure off Sam in a couple of different ways. One, by saying we're going to run the ball, and two, by being smarter as a coaching staff, by not going for every third and long, by not leaving tackles who are overmatched in one-on-one passing situations in third and long, by saying to Sam, look, if it's third and long, get rid of it, throw it away, and we move on to the next series. You don't have to be Superman. So I think that's how you're going to see, at least for this year, Jeff Fisher try and help Sam Bradford. You know, it's interesting Obviously, the the Seahawks have made some big moves in the last couple of years trying to find that quarterback of the future. And the most recent move is obviously si- uh, trading for Matt Flynn. Uh, but it seems like a lot of the talk during training camp here has been how impressed everyone is with Russell Wilson. What do you think about Flynn versus Wilson? Obviously, it still seems like Flynn should be safe for this year. But do you think that... The Seahawks have really found their player in Wilson and not Flynn? Uh, The short answer is I don't know. Um, Because until I see Flynn and and Russell play real games for an extended time, you know, it's all just speculation. I will say this to you. When I was there early in camp, the feeling was that they really expected Matt Flynn to be their starter. Now, 
They like Russell Wilson a lot. He goes out in the preseason. He plays very well against the backups. And so now you start to say, hmm, does he really have what it takes? And that's why you're going to see him start this week, you know, because I think Pete Carroll wants to see what can he do against the number one defense and with the number one offense. And if he moves the ball as well this week as he did in those first two preseason games against backups, then I say all bets are off, and I think Russell Wilson has a very real chance of planting Matt Flynn. But if he doesn't, then I think Matt Flynn will be your guy. You know, it's interesting. The Cardinals have had <laughs> have had to have been nervous about quarterbacks since the very first offensive snap in the Hall of Fame game, which was an interception and it led to an injury. And there's, it seems like more than any city in the National Football League, we have a locker room kind of divided. Some guys maybe on the team would prefer to go a Skelton, and then maybe there's some Cobb guys in there. What are the Cardinals going to do with their quarterback situation? I, I don't think it, the locker room's divided at all. I, I think you will find that most players are in John Skelton's corner at this point. Okay, Kevin Cobb, in part, is suffering from the contract that he received in that trade. And when you get money like that, there are certain expectations. And if you don't meet them, you know, you have a shorter leash. And I think that the fact that he was hurt last year, he didn't perform well when he was in the lineup, I think the guys um, started to question him. And now John Skelton comes in, and he's by no means a great quarterback, but he's a gamer. And so in the fourth quarter after, say, three horrendous quarters, he could be like Tim Tebow and make some plays, and they win a game at the end. Um, I don't think they believe necessarily that, that, that either of these guys are the long-term answer at this point. They want Kevin Cobb to be, and they're trying to give him every opportunity to be that, but he hasn't been able to grab those reins and ride with it. So in my mind, I think what they're going to do is try and play great defense. They're going to try and run the ball, lean on the running game, and they're going to try and keep Cobb or Skelton, and I believe it will be John Skelton, out of those obvious passing situations where mistakes can be made. You mentioned the running game, and I, I was super disappointed when Ryan Williams went down with his injury, but he seems to be, if not all the way back, close to back. Did you get a chance to see Ryan Williams run, and what do you think about the chances that he's more the featured back than Beanie Wells, who's had so many problems just staying on the field in this league? Yeah, I, I definitely think that there's a possibility because of the injury factor that you talk about. You know, I was there the day Beanie came back to practice for the first time, and you could see he was still tentative. He could run straight ahead, but there was no lateral movement. Um, Ryan Williams looked uh, excellent in the preseason game, and I think you are going to see a lot of him. But is he the type of guy that can be a feature back over 16 games? I'm not so certain of that. And that's why I think that, that, that the Cardinals are going to try and use, utilize both of them but Beanie Wells is a real concern for me. Um, you know, you look at his knee, and from what I hear at this point, he's going to need microfracture surgery at some point is what I'm being told. Um, and that's not good for a running back, as you know. So I think they're going to have to play great defense. They're going to have to be opportunistic on offense, and they're going to have to get some plays on special teams, particularly from Patrick Peterson. If they can do that, they're competitive, but I still don't think that they're in the class of the 49ers or even the Seahawks at this point. Sportscasters are here with Jim Trotter from Sports Illustrated. You can find him on Twitter at SI underscore Jim Trotter. Uh, looking at the AFC a little bit, and I know you were there early, I think 
you filed your postcard August 7th, but how did Peyton Manning look to you? He looked like Peyton. Um, the issue with Peyton is, I think Peyton is the same player, but I think some people think that he's going to be the Peyton of the early 2000s or the mid-2000s. And I don't think he's that guy. I think we saw his last year in, in Indianapolis. He had started to descend somewhat. Doesn't mean he wasn't a great quarterback, effective quarterback. He was, but he was not still that same guy. But the key with Peyton to me is it's not can he take a hit because I believe that's not going to be an issue. The key with Peyton to me is how soon can he get on the same page with these receivers? You know, for the first time since being drafted in 1998, he's got a new offensive coordinator. He's got a new system, and he's got new wide receivers. And Peyton is, is, is manic-obsessive about precision and timing with his guys, and it's not completely there. And when I spoke to him, that's the thing he kept talking about was the process, you know, and that you can't accelerate that process. It takes time. And I think we're going to see some problems at least early um, with these guys being on the same page. And the other thing you can't overlook is, their schedule is brutal. I believe six of their first eight opponents were playoff teams from a year ago. You know, when you step into that sort of gauntlet, um, it, it, it's going to be tough, in my opinion. So, I think the Denver uh, will be competitive. I think Denver will be in it, but I think ultimately Denver's lack of depth at some positions is going to catch up to them. If it does catch up to him and Denver isn't the team that ultimately wins this division, who is the next team or two that will be challenging to take that spot? Oh, Kansas City's my, my pick for the division. Uh, I think Kansas City's the deepest team in the division. I think two years ago it won the title, uh, the division title, so we know that it's capable of that. And now you look at everything it went through last year, from three of its best players all being out after or by the end of the second week, and that's right. Tony Moyaki, Eric Berry, and Jamal Charles, to losing Matt Castle midway through the year, you know, to having issues at right tackle, um, and yet they were still in a position to win the division title on the final Sunday of the season last year. So now you step into this year, and they get all of those players back, plus they add a right tackle in Eric Winston, and you add Stanford Rout at cornerback, and you add Peyton Hillis, who looks like the Peyton Hillis of two years ago now that he's reunited with Brian Dable. And to me, this is the deepest team in the division. Now, also factor in the fact that all of the tension from the battle between Todd Haley and Scott Pioli is gone. You know, um, I just think that this is a team right now that's young, it's been through adversity, it's hardened, and I think that it's ready to make a move in the division. Finishing up here with Jim Trotter, Sports Illustrated, a senior writer. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at SI underscore Jim Trotter. And I guess I always like to kind of ask this question in different forms, but as we get closer to the season here and these next couple of preseason games, these next couple of practices as training camps wind down, what kind of things are you still going to be looking to learn as the teams, even if it's not the, some of the teams we talked about, but just in general about the league, what do you still want to know? What do you still want to learn as we get to the start of this NFL season? Well, I think the number one thing you have to focus on going into this season is, is replacement officials and how that's going to impact the game. You know, every player I talk to says it's going to be a disaster, you know, not only because of wrong calls or inefficiency, but also because they believe these replacement officials are going to slow down the game simply because they have so much information to process 
that at times they stop the game to huddle and make sure that they've got it right. And if you're a hurry-up offense and the replacement officials are stopping or slowing the game, it impacts you strategically. Um, the other thing with the replacement officials now, we talk so much about player safety. You know, we've got all, I, I saw hits in the preseason where I'm almost 100% certain with the regular officials, a flag would have been thrown. Flag wasn't thrown by these replacement officials. So there are these judgment calls now that are going to impact, you know, what happens in games. So that's first and foremost to me. You know, after that, I look at guys like Randy Moss. Can he be the Randy of old? And if he is, does that make San Francisco the favorite in the NFC to get to the Super Bowl? Uh, We talk about Peyton, as you said. What are we going to get from him? You know, I think Andrew Luck in Indianapolis is going to give the Colts more than what some fans believe. I think Indianapolis could be a surprise team in the division. I think it will potentially, um, if it can stay healthy, contend for that division title, even though I think Houston is the front runner. So there are all these elements, as well as Philadelphia with the Andy Reid situation. There's so much pressure on him right now to get it done this year, and yet I'm not sure they will, because not because Michael Vick can't necessarily stay healthy, but I'm concerned about the defense and how he didn't go out and get an established defensive coordinator. He's sticking with Juan Castillo. Um, to me, that may be riding your own pink slip out of town. He didn't look too happy with Colin Jenkins the other night, that was for sure. <laughs> right. Uh, have you picked out your game for week one yet? Do you know where you're going that first week? Not yet. I think I may be doing something you know, on Andrew Luck or the, or the rookie quarterbacks, but as of right now, no, nothing's certain at this point. And uh, not this week, I think it's Mike Trout on the cover, but next week should be uh, the Sports Illustrated preview issue. Did, what role did you have in that? What can we look forward to reading in the Sports Illustrated NFL preview issue from Jim Trotter? Uh, basically, I wrote the previews on each of the AFC West and NFC West teams. And, um, you know, it, it's, these things at this time are... are uh, for football fans, I think they understand a lot of, of what the issues are with teams. But for us, we it's a little dicey from the standpoint you have to write these things early and so much changes from day to day in training camp. You know, you write the Chargers and then all of a sudden Vincent Brown goes down. Or you write the Chiefs and then Tom Mahali gets a suspension. You know, or Brandon Flowers is in a boot. Um, so you just kind of hope that what you wrote holds up and, and, you know, you move on to the first week of the season. Mr. Char, thank you so much for joining us today, and we're looking forward to the start of the season as much as you are, and look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you very much. All right, buddy. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Stephen Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonette Ocho Cinco, TJ Pushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. (laughs) I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. I want to thank Jim Trotter for joining us on the podcast. And I have to say that there's a very good chance this is the last five on fantasy you're going to hear before you draft. Yes. Maybe not definitely, but we've gotten to the point where leagues are drafting. Absolutely. Uh, Teams are being formed. Players are being picked. Rules are being settled on. Beer is being consumed. Pizza is (laughs) being eaten. It's all going down pretty much now. 
That's right. Between now and Wednesday, September 5th, your draft or drafts is going to it's going to happen. So what we wanted to do on five on fantasy today is Don and I are each going to give you three guys that we're pretty sure we're not going to draft. Or should I say three guys that we're going to do the absolute best we can to stay away from. And three guys that we're going to do our best to draft. That doesn't mean that we're going to draft a guy with like a ninth round grade in the third round. It just means that if the opportunity arises, we're going to jump on this guy. And in each position, we're going to say we're going to jump on him as opposed to this other guy. Right. Or we're going to stay away from this guy to pick this other guy. Right. So I think that that's a good explanation. If not, as we go through this, you'll understand what we mean a little bit better. And Don can kick us off with his first stay away. Yeah, with these, it's not necessarily guys we don't like. It's guys we don't like where they're being drafted. Like, we don't like them enough where they're being drafted. Uh, The first guy I won't own is MJD, who is currently on ESPN. We use ESPN because, as far as I can tell, NFL.com doesn't have ADPs. So ESPN is based on real vote or real drafts done by presumably real people. Uh, right now, ESPN has MJD at the 8.9 area, which makes him a late first-round pick. At that point, I would rather have Chris Johnson, who is actually right behind him. I'd rather have Matt Forte, who is about almost 10 picks behind him. He's at 16. Yeah, I went the same way here with MJD. I'm 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 not taking him, especially not this week. You know, like right. I have a draft Friday and I know that Friday he's not going to be on my team because I I have a feeling based on the position he plays running back. The reason he's doing this is because he's not willing to put his body at risk to have what happened to Matt Forte right. happen to him. So I think there's a very good chance he could hold out until the very last possible day to get credit for the year, which is like around a week 10 or 11 or 12. Because of that, I'm not using my first-round pick on this guy no matter what. And the guy that I put that I'd much rather have than him is Matt Forte because I think Matt Forte this year is going to be a stud number one fantasy running back. Yeah, if we want to bounce back and forth here, the guys I own – is going to be the guys I think I will own in a lot of leagues is Matt Forte. Uh, He's going in the second round. So you can have a late first round pick. Like if you have maybe say the ninth or 10th first round pick and someone like Matt Stafford is there and you want to take him, you might still get Forte in the next round. So I think I would own him for that reason. Or if I'm worried enough that I'm not going to get him, if I know in the league I'm drafting on Friday, I picked 12th. Is Matt Forte's there? I'm probably taking him because I might even like him better than Chris Johnson. I don't know if I would have uh, the guts, I guess, to make that pick. But I probably would. I actually think I would make that pick. I like him a little bit better, especially in a a PPR league. Well, I shouldn't say that. Chris Johnson catches a lot of balls, too. In his mouth. (laughs) But uh, Matt Forte, I like his value a lot. Uh, At 15, I feel like regardless of where I pick in a draft, I might have two shots at him. Too, and I'm probably taking him late in the first. Yeah, I kind of use the same logic that that I'll have two shots at him with my first guy that I think I'm going to get on a lot of teams, and that's Darren McFadden. Every time I've seen McFadden touch the ball in the preseason, he's looked like the fastest player on the field, and he's rushed for 20 yards. 
Yeah, they haven't worked him a ton, but the work that he's gotten has been spectacular. Yeah. I Which know he's crazy because in the, the game I watched, their offensive line looked terrible too. So I know he comes with risk. I know that he comes with injury risk, but so do all these running backs. I'm not going to hold that against him. Yeah, really, really guy. beyond Chris Johnson, they all come with with a lot of risks. So yeah, so he's going about 22, which means I should get around two chances to draft him, and I think I'm going to end up with him on a lot of teams. And a guy that I'd rather have him over who. Definitely the second time I'd be able to choose between is Jamal Charles. I picked Jamal Charles because they're kind of similar in the sense that they're both speed demons. They're both really fast. They're both guys who can take it from the one to the end zone. But I would just rather – I know McFadden has had injury risk, but I'd rather take him over a guy who I still I mean, haven't seen. He's coming seen off an ACL. So, an ACL. Yeah. My second guy I don't want is Marshawn Lynch. Uh, again, it th- it's looking like – he may not be suspended. I don't really base that on anything other than there's no news coming out about him being suspended. So it, it looking it's looking like he may not be, or at least it won't be a severe suspension. But he's still going, and he's maybe that's why he's going in the second round. His ADP right now on ESPN is 18.8, which puts him just behind Matt Forte. Guys I'd rather have are Matt Forte if I was faced with that decision between the two of them. And guys that are going after him, I wrote Darren McFadden and Jamal Charles. Like you said, similar players. I'd rather have the upside of both of them over Marshawn Lynch. All right, the second guy that I'm going to stay away from this year is Roy Halu. I don't know what's going on with Halu. I mean, first of all, I'm not really the guy that's rushing to pick uh, Redskins running back anyway because, I mean, everyone knows the kind of funny – term in fantasy football regarding shenanigans, you know, the shenanigans of uh, <laughs> Shanahanigans or what, however people yeah, say yeah. it, just how he uses running backs and he hate, I must hate fantasy football, but people are drafting Roy Halu. Uh, his ADP right now is 63, so that's the third pick in the sixth round, but if you go to ourlads.com, seventh round, seventh seventh round, round excuse right. me, you go to ourlads.com and you look at the depth chart. For running backs, Tim Hightower is listed as one, Evan Royster is listed as two, and Halu is listed as three, and a Redskins fan who's close to us in the podcast said, look out for Alfred Morris, who's listed as four. All that says to me is this is just as crowded as ever, and I'm just not willing to make that risk with Halu at that spot. Uh, someone who's kind of near there is Stephen Wrigley. Again, kind of a crowded yeah, a tough and convoluted situation, but I think I'd still rather take a risk with Wrigley than I would with Halu because I just don't know even why Halu was ever considered this big fantasy stud. Yeah, I don't think I end up with either guy there because I just feel like there's there's got to be a lot of value at another position. Like maybe you. Yeah, I'm probably not picking a running back. Just kind of the format that we set up. I needed to find a running back. Right, right. But, yeah, right there, if my options are Halu or Wrigley, I'm probably picking a different position. But if I have to pick a running back, it's Wrigley. And the bigger point is I don't want any part of Halu or no. really anyone in the Redskins' backfield. Right. And Matthew Barry of ESPN Fantasy Focus podcast fame has even kind of said that and I, as I mentioned earlier, we're using the ADPs from ESPN's site. They're 
massive. I imagine it's the biggest fantasy site in the world. I don't have that stat in front of me, but NFL doesn't have their ADPs. And ESPN has their cheat sheets, and Halo is around that spot on their cheat sheets. I so just don't get that. It works out that way where maybe if people are auto-drafting or if you're just looking at a cheat sheet and you see Halo there. So to some degree, these are going to be a little bit slanted uh, towards their cheat right. sheet. that's true. Which will be a point with one of my – I'll just bring them up now. The next guy I think I'll own in a lot of leagues, especially ESPN leagues, if people are using that cheat sheet or auto-draft, is Doug Martin. According to ESPN drafts right now, he is the 82.6. He has an 82.6 ADP, which makes him a ninth-round pick. And you're drafting backups at that point. You might as well draft a rookie with some upside at a a vital position like running back. Right. So, I mean, if he's really going to be... And Blunt is already banged up. Right. If this guy has first running back or number one running back potential... At a ninth round spot, and I mean, there's no risk there. So I think I own him in a lot of leagues. I imagine I would go for him maybe in the seventh round, eighth round. Like he could be the first backup I pick up, maybe. A guy that I want to own in a lot of leagues is Percy Harvin. Yeah, uh, Percy Harvin is a guy who just does a lot of things on the football field. I mean, he can run the ball out of the backfield. He can catch a pass five yards and take it 95, and he can run a 60 yard route and haul down a Mary. I mean, I just think he does a lot of things, and I don't know the exact stat, but I know that once Ponder was the quarterback for the Vikings, he was among the league leaders in touches. Uh, so Harvin is a guy that I'm going to go out of my way to try to draft. His ADP right now is around uh, 54, which would be, what, the fourth sixth pick in the round. sixth round. So if you I'd have no problem scooping him up in the fifth round. Absolutely. Um, Vincent Jackson is a guy that is the next person on the list. I'd no much way. rather, Absolutely. much rather have Harvin than Vincent Jackson. I agree totally. Um, a guy I won't own. Back to that, uh, Eli Manning. According to ESPN, his average draft position right now is twenty-eight, which makes him a third-round pick. There's no way I touch Eli with a third-round pick. Not so much. I've been too much of an Eli hater in the past, and I've kind of. Uh, come around on that a little bit. He's going to throw a lot. He kept his interceptions down. He had, a, I think, he had five thousand yards last year. Um, he's going to have value. That said, you're leaving guys like Mike Wallace, AJ Green, uh, Victor Cruz, Julio Jones potentially still on the board there. It's not so much that I don't like Eli the quarterback. I don't like Eli the quarterback with the third round pick. I would rather wait on the next best quarterback. Who they who ESPN has is Michael Vick. Sure, there's risk there, but he probably has higher upside. You're getting him a pick later or a round later. Even Peyton Manning, to some extent, you're getting him in the fifth round. So you've got two running backs, two receivers already, or you have a tight end in there. I just I don't like the guys you're passing on to take Eli in the third round. My last guy that I'm going to stay away from is San Antonio Holmes. Uh, not that he's got a high Jeez, ADP, yeah. but it's 100. I'll tell you this. I don't want anyone from the Jets offense as of right now. Just no. complete stay away from me. And some guys that are near him, uh, Brandon Pettigrew, if I don't have a tight end yet, I'd yeah. much rather pick sure. him 
than than uh, Holmes. At a hundred, you're talking the last pick of the tenth round, early picks in the eleventh round. Brandon Pettigrew, if he really lasts to pick one hundred in your draft, that could be your starting tight end. Yes, and a pretty good one. And you've got him at a price where you're picking upside backups before you even get to him, and you're still getting him. So yeah, I agree totally with. And that. On, and another guy just to throw out number one hundred eight. So just a little bit further down is Justin Blackman. I would much rather sure go with the upside and the potential that Blackman has than be any part of the Jets and their floundering offense with yeah. quarterbacks coming in and out. And I just don't think anyone has any confidence there. And if it's true that a defensive back is the second best wide receiver on that <laughs> team, that means that the coverages are going to be – you would think All so. over Holmes. Yeah, you would think so. So I don't want any part of him. Uh, the last guy that I will own in many leagues is Jimmy Graham. Uh, I'm a big fan of taking tight ends early for the advantage you get at that position. If you've got a guy like Jimmy Graham that, or Rob Gronkowski that produces like a number one receiver and the third or fourth best tight end produces like a number three receiver – you automatically start every game with like a five point advantage. I mean, granted, you've given up whatever you did to pick there, so you're missing a running back that you have to make up for, or a wide receiver you have to make up for. But I feel that the distance between the tight ends and the steady production you get from the guys like Jimmy Graham and Gronkowski makes up for it. The reason I said Jimmy Graham in this scenario is because his ADP has him as a third round pick. I would pick him as early as the second round. Uh, whereas Gronkowski, you might see him go in the first round and never even get a chance at him. You might see him go early in the second round before you'd be willing to take him. But at Jimmy Graham, at, with the second pick in the third round, his average ADP right now, I could see myself taking him in the second round in a lot of drafts. The last guy that I think I'm going to draft in a lot of drafts, it's kind of not necessarily my normal style, but is Randy Moss. His ADP huh. right now is 126. That's the sixth pick in the 13th round. Yeah. And I just think that Why he's not? a guy worth rolling the dice for. If I can re- if my whole team basically is filled at this point and I'm just rounding off bench spots, why not take a chance on a guy who's one of the best to ever play the position? Wide receivers ar- ar- that are around him are guys like, oh, I don't know, um... You definitely should be, regardless of who's around him, you should be picking upside at that point. Uh, you, you don't want to pick a guy that, uh, you don't want to pick a boring, just plug-in receiver. Sidney Rice is a guy who's right near him. I don't know who's going to be throwing Sidney Rice the ball. I know that Sidney Rice is another guy who maybe has some higher-end potential, but he's kind of dropped off the last couple of years. I just... Darius Hayward Bay is another guy that's around him. Darius Hayward Bay does have a little upside, but more question marks than upside. I just I want to give Randy Moss a chance, and I think I'm going to be the guy to do it in at least a couple leagues because I just think that he could produce like a number two wide receiver, and there's very few guys in that area of the draft that have that potential. The last thing I'll say on, on this whole topic is uh, it would have been a cop-out for me to say it, but I'm not going to own any defense that makes me... The 49ers defense ADP on ESPN right now is 70, meaning it's the last pick in the seventh round, first pick in the eighth round. Granted, I'll say it again, that probably has a lot to do with auto-draft. Maybe I don't know how auto-draft works. It might just fill your starting lineup before it fills bench lineup spots. But 
I won't be a guy to reach on a defense at all. Uh, my defense will be picked. And again, I'm kind of regurgitating Matthew Barry here, but my defense will be my second to last pick. My kicker will be my last pick. Same here. No uh, doubt about it. There's been enough studies. You can read articles all over the internet that talk about how the top 10 preseason rated defenses seldomly look anything like the top 10 end of season rankings when it all comes down to it. So, so don't reach. How many people had the Philadelphia Eagles dream team defense last year really early and look what they got them. So don't reach on a defense round or two. Maybe. I mean, I'm going to wait till the end and I'll pick somebody different in free agency if I have to. All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to be back with Jeff Perlman, one of our favorites. Our next guest is from Mayopac, New York, and is a graduate of the University of Delaware. After college, he started his career in journalism, writing about food and fashion in Nashville. In 1996, he was hired by Sports Illustrated, where he spent seven years writing mostly about baseball. He authored the infamous John Rocker piece that ran in the magazine in 1999. After SI, he spent two years writing for Newsday, but left to focus on writing books. He has written several books that have appeared on the New York Times bestseller list, including his biography about the 1986 Mets called The Bad Guys One. He has also written books about Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and the 1990s Dallas Cowboys. His latest book, Sweetness, The Enigmatic Life of Walter Payton, explores the days of an amazing, mysterious, misunderstood football icon and is available on paperback this week. A warm sportscaster's welcome for the third time to the very talented and engaging Jeff Perlman. What's up, Jeff? Hey, first of all, I love that you mentioned I'm from Mayopac, New York, a town that almost nobody listening to this has ever heard of. <laughs> you know, I, I bet at least three people will get out an atlas, though, and they'll be like, where the hell? Yeah, I, I hope so. Where's it's a hometown, Mayopac? I can tell you, it's a hometown of two famous people. Henry Winkler's mother, Henry Winkler, who played the Fonz on Happy Days. Oh, right, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and former uh, Seattle Mariners left-hander Dave Fleming, who went uh, 17-11 and 11 in 1992 or three. So there you go. No kidding. Oh, how about that? Man. Well, I'm calling to you from I'm calling you from North Tonawanda, which is a suburb of Buffalo, which is uh home of the um the uh jukeboxes. Uh um, very nice. Yeah, the jukeboxes invented here. There's a real popular company that invented them that I can't think of right now, but whatever. So we got you got uh Defonz's mom and I got jukeboxes. And sadly the jukebox is kind of obsolete now that the iPod has taken everything over. You know, there's a best there's just no need for a jukebox anymore unless no. you're really into nostalgia. Do you ever see one of those cool ones though that they have at some bars where you can like download any song you want off oh, the yeah. internet right onto the? So that's kind of fun. You know, I did, and um, they had every Blind Melon song that you could. They have, and I, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super cool. And with each one, the B girl would dance no matter what song you picked on that jukebox. Yeah. <laughs> it is phenomenal. Right. Phenomenal. So big week for you. I, I mean, I, I wish it was the week that your new book came out, but not yeah. not yet. I'm sure you're looking forward to that day, too. But uh, Sweetness is out on paperback. And we talked about it a little bit last time when you were on. You had mentioned that you weren't really going to do anything new. It was basically going to be the same book. But I wonder, now that the day is here and the book is out, what, what, what do you as a writer kind of hope 
for I mean obviously you hope that people go out and buy it but is there any kind of other goals that you hope the paperback can accomplish for this book which is one of the great projects of your life uh, yeah that's actually pretty good and in this case kind of loaded question I mean usually the answer is you want it to sell and you want it to do well and you hope it's a you know they sell it cheaper so you hope more people buy it you know blah 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 in this case I feel like I got so sort of unfairly hammered uh, when Sweetness first came out and before it came out, when SI excerpted it, that I think in the city of Chicago especially, I feel like a lot of the columnists there really took a sledgehammer to me and a lot of the thinkers, sports and news and otherwise, uh, without having read the book. And it really sort of put a dent in, you know, I really... You know, I, I, I love this book, not not because I'm saying I'm the world's greatest writer or anything like that. I love this book because I really came to love Walter Payton, and I became very passionate about Walter Payton. And, and the book is, you know, 480 pages, which is by far the longest book I've written. And I, I just felt like I was getting slammed, absolutely slammed, uh, based off of a seven-page excerpt without people having read the book. And I'm sort of hoping, you know, the reviews are really positive. I mean, really positive, and, and the best I've ever received I'm sort of hoping maybe now that it's come, it, it, it comes out in paperback and people see it again in the, the bookstores a little bit and maybe in, on a different places that they uh, sort of reconsider and, and based upon the reviews that they've now heard, uh, give it a shot. That's, that's I, I mean, maybe I'm, it's a pipe dream, but I kind of hope. You know, anyone who follows you on Twitter, who's a fan of you, follows your blog, knows that you're a sensitive guy. You're not afraid to admit that sometimes criticism and the way that it's presented, kind of the facelessness of it on the internet, that it hurt, it hurts you. It it cuts, it cuts deep. I can tell sometimes in the way that you write about it that you're legitimately hurt by some of the things that people say. And I wonder if, as it got closer to the release of this paperback, if you were worried at all that you wouldn't be able to do it again. If if the heat came back, if the people who are so blind to the way they love Walter Payton would never give you that chance and that this might bring some of those feelings up. And, and I wonder if just based on your nature, if if you worried about that, if you worried about being able to go through this again with this book. Well, that's a very good question right there. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I, I was sitting with my wife about four hours ago. Someone tweeted today, some mean tweet, of, you know, some whatever mean tweet, and they were like, they started with, hey, Baldy. No, it was an email, hey, Baldy, right? And, uh, you know, like I was saying, I was laughing to my wife. I was like, "Like that's the dumbest thing ever." A, I'm married with two kids. B, I'm forty. I've shaved my hair off for years. Like stuff like that has never bothered me. Never. You could say, "Ooh, you're the ugliest guy in the world." I could care less. Or, you know, you like you're dressed like a four, you know, a fourth grader. Don't care. It doesn't bother me. It has never bothered me. Nothing physical. Nothing personal. Like you don't know me, but you insult my like odor. You know, stuff like that has never bothered me at all. What what hurts? There's always hurt the most is when people, A, sort of insinuate that your motivation is money, uh, and B, that you don't do your research, C, sort of your crap writer. Those are the ones that hurt because they're more, they're more sort of uh, professional, you know, and those are the ones that really cut. And I am, I definitely am, I think a lot of writers are sensitive. I think a lot of writers Google themselves and check out what people are saying on Twitter. I just think most don't admit it. And I, I've never had a problem admitting it. Um, the reason I'm not really worried about that this time with, with the paperback uh, and haven't really thought about it in that, in that way 
is because I think now people have heard the book. Like, I, I do think there are enough positive reviews out there that, and people have the content of the book that it can't just be sort of an and this guy's Joe Walter Payton. Because enough people read, I mean, what's on the, on the bestseller list, you know, like enough people have read it that they at least know that that wasn't my incentive. And, and if you read the book, um, it's pretty obvious that I put a lot of research, a lot of detail, and a lot of heart into it. So I'm concerned about it. I certainly didn't enjoy the initial experience. You know, it's interesting that I would ask you that question on this day because I think a lot of what you went through last time, uh, former colleague of yours, uh, Joe Poznanski, is going through now with his paternal book, which was also released today. And I wonder, you know, you know, he's going through all this, like, just please read the book, you know, and then judge it and then judge me and then judge my work. And I see a lot of similarities between maybe what you went through and what Joe went through. Have you sat back to think about that at all or think about the position that Joe's in with his book? You know, it's a, that's a man, you're on fire. That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I actually have never, I don't think met Joe in person, but we've, we traded emails and whatever. I actually wrote a while ago, a sort of critical post about Poznanski's book without having read it. And it wasn't about the book per se. It was about sort of the publishing company rushing to get it out as soon as possible. Um, and how can you possibly release a book like that so soon after all this stuff came down? You know, because you're basically shoehorning stuff in to a certain degree. And I also said, I mean, there were some, I didn't love how Joe, you know, from afar, admittedly, this is a critique, like, I didn't like that he was speaking at class at the Penn State. Right. You know, I thought, like, he was there to report and, and not to, I thought that was, that was not cool. And, and you know, he, uh, I didn't like how, you know, there was a video. He, he, he just always came off as very sort of defensive and deferential uh, toward Joe Paterno. And I thought there was a bad way to go about it um, because you never know. You never know what's going to turn up on somebody. You just don't. You never, ever, ever know. So no matter how much you love someone, Unless you're writing a biography, an autobiography with someone, unless he was, he was ghostwriting Joe Paterno's book, which means it's from Joe Paterno's perspective, I don't think you should ever be like, this is the greatest guy in the world, or, or sort of give the impression that someone is fantastic, when you just don't know for sure when something is going to pop up. Um, that being said, I actually do feel for him. And I think, first of all, the book's going to sell. It's already selling you, so he doesn't have to worry about that. Um, but I do think his, he has taken a hit because people feel like it's sort of a love, a love letter to Joe Paterno, um, or assume it's going to be. And I, you know, I'm, I'll, I keep forgetting to order a book on Amazon or wherever. I probably will today, but I'm definitely going to give it a, uh, a read before I pass any judge. In fact, someone asked me to come on their, uh, their radio show today and talk about Poznanski's book. And I said, I said, I haven't read the book, so I'm not going to do it. So I get it. I get what he's going through. It's not fun. Um, I think he brought some of it on himself. I think now that the book is out, the best people can do is actually read the book before passing any further judgment. Yeah, you know, I totally, I, I kind of feel like uh, with George Costanza here. I kind of want to just hang up on you after like this run of good questions, you know, like leave on a good note. <laughs> but uh, you know, don't ask me like how old are you? So Jeff, how old are you? <laughs> or what's your favorite color? Yeah. <laughs> so Jeff, I've always wanted to know what is it like to be married. Um, <laughs> great. Uh, but um, to just get back to my train of thought about about. Poznanski's book and, and, and sweetness and kind of thinking of how, how you guys compare, you know, I think that, yes, you've both said, you know, please read the book, but I, I think I agree in the sense that you didn't get out in front of sweetness quite 
in the way he did to create kind of a love affair. And I think maybe that's the mistake that might rub people some the wrong way. And I think that's maybe what you kind of picked up on if I'm following you correctly. Well, I will tell you something interesting. I, uh, I never, almost never talk about what book I'm writing about until it's coming out. You know, I'm really superstitious and I always worry, you know, I've had it happen where, uh, you know, I wrote a biography right? of Barry yeah. Bonds, and oh, then, Bonds. you know, Game of Shadows came out a couple weeks before. So I'm always really paranoid about people, I don't know, I don't, it's, it's ridiculous, but finding out what I'm doing and then trying to rush, someone else is working on a book on the same tub, subject, and then they rush theirs out. And I think, like, I really do think Joe would have been best served, and I'm not, I'm not saying he did anything wrong here, I think he would have been best served by no one knowing this book was coming, and just busting your ass on it, reporting it to death, and then a couple of months before it's coming out, sort of, you know, start, start hyping it a little bit because he, he, he did start, people did start thinking a long time ago about the, about the Posnanski book and he kind of put out some very positive feelers toward Joe Paterno. And I'm not saying I don't blame him for having those feelings, but, but it's backfired a little bit. You know, I think we kind of talked about this in a different way, but the last time you were on, but it's so interesting because Sports Illustrated actually passed on running an excerpt of the of the Poznanski paternal book and so much of the heat that you took for sweetness was based on what people read in the sweetness excerpt in SI. And I wonder if you ever wish that SI maybe just would have said, you know what, show us the next book. We're not going to run a, a passage from this one. <laughs> uh, nah, do I wait? I, maybe I missed Are you saying, do I wish they said that? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, like the, like, do I wish they bypassed? They yeah, passed on the, like, on my... does part of you, like, <laughs> almost wish that? <laughs> there were, I would say, in the uh, in the two weeks after the book came out. You know, it's interesting. Like, the first, yeah, I did at first. I don't anymore. But I did, you know, at first, like, and the excerpt ran, and the excerpt was all about, was primarily about infidelity and sort of drug abuse and depression and suicidal thoughts. And uh, people were like, man, that's I really screwed you over running that excerpt. And at first sort of mindlessly, I was like, yeah, they really did, they really did, they really did. And the truth, but then I, I, I really changed my take on that. Um, first of all, you just can't, you don't turn down the cover of Sports Illustrated excerpting your book. I mean, that's ridiculous. You, nobody would. Um, and second of all, like, I, I actually got mad about that train of thought after a while, because you know what? I freaking reported my ass off on that book. And the stuff about, like, him being depressed and him writing, you know, writing suicidal letters, like, that's not just that's not just like gossipy, you know, BS. That's like a guy whose career is over, who's been beaten up, not really knowing what to do with his life. And that's poignant and that's important. And I think that's stuff that people actually, there's a, there's a service. I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm saying in general, there's a service in knowing that after athletes retire, they go through a real struggle. So initially when I was like, oh yeah, maybe they did not, you don't know. I'm proud of that stuff. I'm proud of the reporting I did. I don't blame SI at all for running that excerpt. I think it was a, it was a strong passage from the book. Um, and I just think we happen to live now in a culture uh, where a lot of the media contribute to this, too, of being very sort of buddy-buddy with, with athletes and with subjects, you know? And, and my reputation over the years, to a certain degree, and it's not what I like, is, oh, he's the guy who goes after athletes. And the truth of the matter is I don't think I do go after athletes. I think I go after the entire true story of who someone is, and anybody's true story, mine and yours included, has highs and lows. The sportscasters are here with Jeff Perlman. 
who you can find his wonderful blog at www.jeffperlman.com. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Jeff Perlman, both very easy to find. You know, you had a piece that ran on CNN.com, I believe, this summer, kind of about parenting. And you've given everyone a look into your life as a parent this summer on your blog and through your Twitter. And I wonder if the more that you tweet and blog and write columns like that on CNN and the more that you, you you're also really in, into politics so far your books have been limited to sports but I wonder if the more that you do these things do you find yourself wanting to maybe expand what people think of you like right now you're pretty much labeled as a sports writer but do you hope like in the future to for that to expand and maybe write a book about parenting your your thoughts on it or Something like that. Like, do you want to expand your your scope of what you write about in the future? You know, you know I, yeah, I do. I mean, I like the idea of writing non sports books. Um, it's hard. I mean, the truth of, the truth of the matter, just to be blunt and honest about it, is the publishing industry isn't quite what it used to be. And it used to be like, it used to be like if some you have a young writer, let's say in his mid twenties or late twenties, and he has a good book idea. Um, some publishing company, a HarperCollins or a Gotham or a Penguin, will say, "All right, we'll, we'll give this guy whatever forty thousand dollars to write a book," and they would, they would spread these sort of deals out there, um, and they'd mix them in with whatever the Mitch albums or the Mike Lupica's or whoever, you know. So you have these guarantee, you know, a Lupica book or whatever, John Feinstein, you know, these guys are going to sell, but you also take shots with with different subjects out there. Maybe you'll do a book about some crazy plant in South Africa that some minor sound, you know, or you'll do a book about Abraham Lincoln's mistress's dog, just because it sounds interesting, you know, put money into it. And that's how the publishing company uh, business used to be. But sort of as more and more things have gone digital and as, you know, literal print sales have died down and it's more in Kindle and Nook, uh, the deals are harder and harder to find. And I'm in a pretty good position because my books have sold pretty well. But it's it's not nearly as easy as it, as it used to be, and I think I am known as a sports writer. It's 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 not easy, but it's easier for me to get a book deal when I say I want to do a book about Walter Payton or I want to do a book about the '90s Cowboys because my track record is pretty strong. Right. If I all of a sudden said, yeah, you know, I'd really like to do a book about Shannon Hoon, the former lead singer of Blind Melon, I just think it'd be a great story. You know, my odds are really hit hard. Um, so yeah, I like the idea of it. But if I went up to some publishing company and said, you know, I'm a work-from-home dad who picks up his kids every day at school and blah, 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 blah. I think I get a lot of, you know, awkward stares and uh, have you thought about doing a uh, John Elway biography sort of comments, you know? Right. No, I know exactly what you mean. But that that CNN piece, I, I could tell you were really proud of kind of the response that it got, how many times it was, like, retweeted or liked and some of the comments. How did what, what was kind of – how did you end up writing that? Like, how did that come about? I tell you exactly. I, so, uh, first of all, I'm like a, uh, the best part of my job. I would have never thought this when I was sort of coming up at Sports Illustrated in my mid twenties, but I have two kids. Um, my daughter is nine and my son is almost six. And the best part of writing books, hands down, this is no exaggeration or syrupy talk, is that I get to be around my kids and I get to drive them to school in the morning and I pick them up. And my wife and I were, we're married. We, we sort of split who watches the kids on what afternoon. And it's the best. It's just great. I mean, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I get to work out of coffee shops and it's just, it's great. It's, it's the best job in the world. And my, uh, where, I mean, it's probably more than needs to know, but where, where my daughter is going into the fourth grade and they have this thing here 
they have this program here where uh, you can either get into the advanced classes for fourth grade or not, and everyone has to take this test. And it's really ridiculous and, and silly and inane. And all the parents, it's almost like more for the parents and the kids. All the parents get very competitive. And did your kid get in? Oh, did your kid get in? And it really makes me want to vomit. You know, I freaking hate it. Because I think no one ever thinks the end game is for the kids. They always think about like, oh, I really need my kid to get into so and program without thinking that like, it doesn't really, whether you go to Harvard or Delaware or Bucknell or SUNY Brockport, like at the end of it, if you have a passion for something and you're good at something, you'll find a way. And we all end up in the courtyard, in the school court, courtyard. You know, when I look around the school courtyard where I pick up my kids, there's some Ivy League educated, there's a schlub like me from Delaware, there's some people who went to community college and some who graduated from high school. Well, I end up relatively in the same place. So it always makes me, it sickens me how the rat race is almost more for the parents and for the kids. So that's sort of how I came up with to write it. I just, it, the theme was like, what's the end game? What are we all angling for here? And do we even have any idea? Sportscaster's finishing up with Jeff Perlman, who's very kind to join us tonight. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, okay. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> no, I, I thought that was a perfect answer. So I was like, <laughs> Uh, again, his blog is www.jeffperlman.com. Twitter is at Jeff Perlman. I highly recommend both. It's uh, one of the rare chances to almost, I almost feel, I'm, I'm saying this honestly, I almost feel like I know you on a more personal level than almost anyone else whose blog I read or who I follow on Twitter just because of the way you have chosen to use those mediums to interact with the people who follow you. You think well, that's I'll tell you the funny thing. I'll tell you the funny thing. I always say this. is like It actually limits, it limits the following. Um, which isn't such a great thing, but like, I always say this to my wife, a wall, good friend of mine, tennis writer at, at uh, SI, I mean, uh, a soccer writer at SI has this huge Twitter following, but he tweets about soccer. And John Wertheim, one of my best friends, tennis writer, one of ours too. Tennis, but tons yeah. of followers. I'm like, what the hell are the Republicans doing today? Or like, <laughs> my son just pooped in the shape of a dinosaur. And it's like, so it sort of caps out the, the maximum number of followers you have because people get a little exasperated by what I write. But it keeps me sane, and, and it's sort of fun. You know, it's almost like you almost wish it, it was. Almost, it's almost like the Jim Rome show. You almost wish you could tell people just stick with the feed for two weeks, and I promise you'll you'll, you'll <laughs> like it. You know what I mean? You'll no, like. You'll yeah, like I appreciate it, but, that. I do. I um, it. Last thing, we'll let you go on this, and um, just curious. Uh, obviously, you wrote a great football book just before. I know you have a basketball book. That's about all you're willing to to share with us about what's coming next, but that's fine. Uh, as we're getting closer to football and basketball season coming up, are there any things that really excite Jeff Perlman at this point? Like, What are you excited to see play out on the football field this year or on the basketball court? Like, What things are you really looking forward to this fall from a sports sense? Well, I got to say, I'm a, the only team I even care about anymore from a fan's standpoint at all are the, uh, are the Jets and the Nets. And not, as, not nearly as much as I used to, but they were my boyhood teams. And this whole Tim Tebow thing is just annoying beyond annoying to me. And so, like, you know what? Josh Hamilton is a devout Christian, too. Only the guy's a good player. You know, like, right. how about, like, giving that guy a little more You know what? I, I don't even know what it is about Tebow. And I can't believe what the Jets have done to Mark Sanchez. And I think Rex Ryan has totally lost his way. And I can't see how the Jets end up winning more than six or seven games. I, but I do find the whole thing fascinating and how it will play out. And I'm also, you know, I also find the whole Nets thing really, you know, it's an interesting year to be a Jets-Nets follower because I, I do find the whole Brooklyn thing really fascinating and sort of Jay-Z's involvement and, you know, 
everyone, you know, everyone I've, I've talked to as a Nets fan is really excited, but Joe Johnson just seems like that guy who will shoot out as many games as a win for you. And so I, I you know, and also I got to say, like, I used to hate the Giants as a kid, but it's really hard to hate them. You know, they're so professional and they're so likable and, you know, and, and how can you hate Eli Manning or how can you hate right. Victor Cruz? You know, like these are just pros. So I, in a, some odd way, I find myself rooting for the Giants more than the Jets because I just find the Jets so unlikable personally. And the Giants are just the consummate professionals. Well, I know you've been working hard on the new book. You've been out there looking at microfilms and things like that. Are you any, are you any closer to uh, knowing when the book will be available? Roughly, Did, have we talked? Yeah, about I think this it's enough? supposed to. I think it's supposed to come out. It's still a while away. Uh, I kind of hate that. It's uh, it's going to come out in um, January ish. I think it's going to come out right after the Super Bowl, two thousand fourteen. Oh wow! So Holy well, let me tell you something. I will tell you this. The thing about books, it's like, it's great. It's wonderful. I love it. But it's like, when people have you on their shows, just an example, and they say, like, tell me some things about Walter Payton. It's actually harder than people think because you wrote the book so long ago. You know, like, right. well, hey, this, this book I'm working on is, is due in March. It's not coming out until the following January. So there's a big gap where, you know, it gets edited, where you make changes, where maybe you have to check a lot of facts, where you pick the photos, the cover, blah, 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 blah. But like the the time span will drive you crazy, and you, it's like expecting a child. You know, you're so excited for it to come out, and you have to wait forever. You know, it's so funny because since I've been doing this and talking to the different guys, and and some people I like more than others, and I look forward to their work and stuff. And it's like SL Price, I love the guy. He's got a book about El Pie and and the football scene there coming out, and I'm like dying to read that. Jonah mm-hmm. Carey is another guy I like. He's got a book about the Montreal Expos coming out. I can't wait to check that out. You know, I like you and your work a lot. You got a book about, and it's like all these things. It's just like waiting for Christmas, but Christmas instead of being every year is like three years down the road or something. You know, it's. it's uh, like I know. I will tell you this. I read a. Do you know who? Uh, have you had Mark Kriegel on at all? No, we've never had Mark. Mark is great, like great, great, and you need to get him on. He's like, okay. He's crazy, but fantastic, and he has a book coming out about uh, the boxer Boom Boom Mancini, who uh, who killed a guy in the ring, and yeah. it's. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic, and it's coming out in a couple of months, I think. It's one of the best. It'll be the best sports book of this year. It's just great. So, All right. Well, we'll get Mark for sure, and that'll give us something to, to hold us over in the meantime. But uh, thank you so much for doing this tonight. We really appreciate it. Again, the book is called Sweetness, uh, The Enigmatic Life of Walter Payton. It's out on paperback now, and, of course, you can find it in all the digital ways. And um, Jeff is at Jeff Perlman on Twitter and www.jeffperlman.com for his blog and the quads and all those cool things. Thanks a lot for doing this, Jeff. Thanks, man. You do a great job. You really do. I'm not to say not. Fantastic. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. You got everything you need for it? Pick for you. All right, I want to thank Jeff Perlman for joining us. I also want to thank Jim Trotter and, of course, 
thank Jane Levy for making Season 2, Episode 31 a great podcast. Also want to let you know you can find us at www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. Our blogs are thesportscasters.blogspot.com and thesportscasters.tumblr.com. And our website, where you can find all this information, is www.sports-casters.com. Don't forget to check out our other podcast over at Football Nation, and especially excellent week of our Football Nation podcast this week features an interview with Michael Holly, who you may know from Around the Horn. You may know from The Big Show in Boston. Uh, you may know from his books, Patriot Reign and War Room, but Michael Holly was a really fantastic interview. We just did it, and you guys will definitely like that. You can find that at www.footballnation.com. All right, last piece of business in this podcast is pick four. Last week I went one and three, winning the game of the week. Yankees over Red Sox, four to one. I lost uh, the Saints minus six and a half over the Jaguars. Jaguars won that game outright on a Hal Mary after a really silly pass interference call the marlins uh beat halliday nine to two and chad johnson is still unemployed brings me to 74 and 55 don went two and two also winning the game of the week of the yankees over the red Sox, and he won his preseason game eagles plus three over the patriots 27 17 he lost uh blue jays and rangers three to two that must have been his pitcher yeah it was you darvish right and the CBA is still unresolved in hockey. He's sounding ugly, yeah. 66 and 65 for Don on the year brings us to this week's game of the week. All right, the game of the week this week is Oakland at the Rays. Uh, that game is Saturday at 1 o'clock, or one of their games is Saturday at 1 o'clock, the one we picked. And it features McCarthy versus Hellickson. Uh, I didn't actually circle an answer here for my pick. I'm going to go with Oakland. Yeah, this game I thought is pretty cool because Oakland and Tampa Bay are actually battling for one of those last two wild card spots. Right. And it's always fun to kind of compare those two teams because Oakland has the book Moneyball by Michael Lewis and Tampa Bay has the extra 2% right. by our boy Jonah Carey. Carey. Yep. So I thought this might be a cool game of the week. It's the third game of the series and it does feature the A's ace whose record is just kind of off because he spent some time on the uh, – Injured list this year, but I am also going to take the ace and the A's. All right, my host choice this week, uh, again, we're getting to the part where we either pick a arbitrary baseball game or an arbitrary preseason game. And I'm going to keep rolling with the preseason primetime games. Give me the Sunday night game between the Panthers and the Jets. I'm going to, or Panthers at the Jets. I'm going to take the Panthers plus the three points. I don't want any part of the Jets right now. I think they look terrible. Uh, I mean, but it's preseason, so who knows? Yeah, I'm gonna do the same. I'm gonna say, uh, fool me once, my fault. Fool me twice, someone else's fault. I don't know, whatever that is. <laughs> I'm gonna take the Jaguars plus seven over the Ravens on Thursday at seven thirty. <laughs> Boy, they're still getting seven points in preseason games. Everyone else is getting three, huh? That's crazy. Uh, my winning pitcher this week. I checked over my numbers and I still hadn't used them. I'm gonna go with Cole Hamels. In a season that's been kind of a disaster for the Phillies, he's still been pretty awesome. Been very good, yeah. So give me Cole Hamels at the Reds. It's far from a uh, gimme of a game because the Reds kind of have their ace going too, but uh, give me Cole Hamels. I don't have the date. I'll write it down afterward. I'm going to take uh, Jeff Karstens. 
uh, of the Pirates. He's four and three with a three point seven nine ERA over Randy Wolf, three and ten with a five point six nine, and the Brewers. The game is on Saturday, the twenty fifth at seven oh five. These are games that if the Pirates want to make the playoffs, they're gonna have to get in the habit of winning. All right, my bold prediction this week, I picked on the Jets a little bit for looking terrible, but my Bills have not looked much better. I'm going to say they look to prove that they're not as bad as they've looked in the first two games this week. And this is very bold, but I'm going to say their first team offense scores three touchdowns against Pittsburgh. Okay, Saturday. well, it is the audition game. They do so get, get some maybe time three out of quarters it. out of it. So Three Fingers touchdowns across. from the first offense. All that means is Fitzpatrick has to be the quarterback when the right. touchdowns. Yeah. Unless it's a trick play. Right. Uh, all right. My bold prediction is I'm going to go with a three-team parlay. Three-team NFL preseason parlay. Okay. I'm going to take the Panthers plus three over the Jets, the Rams plus five over the Cowboys, and the Packers minus three over the Bengals. Sounds good. All right. Thanks again to Jane Levy, Jeff Perlman, and Jim Trotter. And just one last thing. We have a great fan out there named Ford Kendricks going through a tough time. And uh, we're thinking about you, buddy. We hope you're okay out in Las Vegas. And uh, when you get yourself better, give us a call. and We'll get you on the show. Maybe you can do three things for uh, with us or something like that. But we're definitely thinking of you, Ford. Dining, cue the hip. All right. <laughs> 